Hello, and welcome back to the Cory Doctorow podcast. It's been a minute. In fact, it's been several weeks. My family went to London to see our relations there and friends. I will tell you a little bit more about that trip. It was something of a mixed bag. Turns out COVID is real. But it was an amazing time, and I'm back at my desk for the first time on a Sunday and ready to talk to you. This week coming up and the weeks after are going to be super busy. I am doing an event on the 15th of November, that's tomorrow as I record this Monday, for the uh, Association for Computing Machinery U.S. Tech Policy Committee called Policy, Profit, Privacy, and Privilege, the Post-Pandemic Future of Remote Testing Technology. That's a webinar, and I'm going to chair it. Later this week, I will be up very early in the morning for a European event sponsored by Article 19 and some of its colleagues, mostly aimed at members of the European Parliament, but open to the public, called Alternative Recommender Systems in the Digital Services Act, How to Protect Free Expression, Create Competition, and Empower Users All at Once. I'm also going to be at Kepler's Books by Remote Video Conference for Jeffrey Craner and Janina Mathewson's novel, You Feel It Just Below the Ribs, on November the 18th. And then I will actually be in person at another event. This is the um, special edition of San Diego Comic-Con that's being held over Thanksgiving weekend. And I'm going to be appearing on a panel called The Kids Are Kinda Alright, and I'll also be doing a signing there. So if you're going to Comic-Con... Or if you want to hear me talking about the Digital Services Act and interoperability, or chairing a panel on remote invigilation and remote testing and privacy, uh, or talking to a couple of great novelists about their new science fiction novel, that's all in the next couple of weeks. So as I mentioned, we've just got back from London. Boy, are our arms tired. And we had an amazing time there, but we also had a COVID scare. Now, we were meant to be staying with my sister and brother-in-law, and my brother-in-law, who was double vaccinated, got a breakthrough case of COVID. It was very mild, but we had to move out of their place and isolate in a hotel and cancel a lot of our plans. But we didn't get sick. None of us got the virus. And my brother-in-law, thanks to the fact that he is double vaxxed, also didn't get very sick. He had a very short and very mild dose of the virus. So that is awfully good news. Please get vaccinated. If you're eligible for a booster, get your booster. We've got those here in California now. I'm going to be getting mine in December. And I think it's something we should all be doing to protect each other and ourselves. While I was overseas, Tor, my publisher, finally figured out how to grease the bureaucratic gears and deliver the contracts for my next four novels. It's very exciting. I mean, we'd already made and accepted the offer, but the contracts were delayed, not because of a lack of willingness, but some new procedures that were put in place over the pandemic and a little bit of paper shuffle. Despite the fact that I was never in doubt that they were going to make good on their offer, it's very nice to have the contract be even better once the contract is signed and I get my first check for it. This is a contract that encompasses the lost cause, my post-Green New Deal, Truth and Reconciliation with White Nationalist Militia Utopia novel, that is coming out at the end of 2013, as well as the uh, Red Team Blues, which is a noir cyber thriller heist novel about cryptocurrency that will come out at the start of 2023. That book has two sequels that have been commissioned to it. The first one is the one I'm writing now, Picks and Shovels. It's really going great guns. The engine's really turned over on that one, and I'm writing 500 words every day, six days a week on it, so it should be done, I hope, by the new year. And then I've got another one that I have to write in the new year. And in addition to that, I've got a lot of other writing projects on my plate. I'm writing an introduction to uh, Motherboard's 
collection of short fiction that I also contributed a story to. I'm writing a new piece for Make Magazine about right to repair. I am writing a short story for MIT Tech Review's next edition of their 12 Tomorrows anthology. I'm writing a new law review article adapting the Privacy Without Monopoly white paper that Bennett Cyphers and I wrote for an Indian law review that focuses on the global south and developing nations. I'm finishing up Spill, which is the now nearly novel-length short story that was commissioned as part of the Kickstarter for Attack Surface. It's a little brother story that's going to probably run 35,000 words by the time it's done. I'm hoping to be done in a couple of weeks. And then I've got another one of those to write for another commission. And so that's basically all my writing from now until, you know, I would say the new year at least. That That's going to take me at least that long to finish those things. I'm going to try to say no to everything else that comes over the transom between now and then, although I suck at saying no. What else is going on? Well, some personal stuff. My new hip is settling in really well. I'm swimming a kilometer every day. I've been doing high-intensity interval training in the morning again, including things like jumping jacks, and my hip is not particularly sore as I do those things, although it does get tired easily. And I'm increasing my laps every day, and I've also booked in my next hip. So I'm going to be having the other hip done on January the 11th. We're going to be overseas through most of December, or I will be, and then meeting my family for Christmas break. And when I get back about a week later, I'm going to have my other hip replaced which will be great. I'm a little lopsided right now. I'm one centimeter taller on my operative side. (laughs) And so it'll be nice to be the same size on both sides. So one of the other things that happened while I was away is Locus published my latest column for them. It's a column called The Unimaginable. And it's about the role that science fiction plays in imagining better futures and in the political currents that cut against that kind of imagining. And that's what I'm going to read to you today. I'm going to do another short podcast because we are having friends over for dinner tonight and I have to get the grill going and clean up the backyard and dust the bar and refill the hot tub and be ready for our dinner guests. So this is going to be a bit of a quick read, but I will be back next Sunday because I won't be at Comic-Con yet. I'm going to skip the week that I'm at Comic-Con, but I'll be back next Sunday with another podcast for you. All right, without further ado, from the November 2021 edition of Locust Magazine, this is the unimaginable. Margaret Thatcher was the least science fictional world leader in modern history. Her motto was, there is no alternative, a phrase she repeated so often it became an acronym, TINA. She was referring to capitalism, asserting that there is no conceivable alternative to it. It was a cheap but remarkably effective rhetorical device, treating a demand as an observation. The true meaning of Tina isn't no alternative is possible, but rather, stop trying to think of an alternative. I mean, thinking of alternatives is literally my job. Tina is part of a philosophy, capitalist realism, a phrase coined by Mark Fisher in the early 2000s. Fisher said that capitalist realism is best captured in the quote, it is easier to imagine the end of the world than an end to capitalism. This quote has been variously attributed to the philosopher Slavo Žižek and the literary critic Frederick Jameson. Žižek, or possibly Jameson, got a lot closer to the problem than Thatcher ever did. For while it is easy to imagine something after capitalism, imagining capitalism's sunset is far harder. 
I mean, I literally did it in my first novel, Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom, 2003, a tale of a post-capitalist, post-scarcity civilization where your ability to commandeer any resource, including Walt Disney World, is based on whether your broad public esteem, aka your woofy, a perpetually retabulated average pulled from direct brain interfaces, is higher than the esteem enjoyed by your rivals. While Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom has some flashback scenes depicting the revolutionary transition between capitalism and the woofy economy, these were thin sketches. We learn about how a single university campus handled the transition, when exploited adjunct professors simply took over their tenured bosses' lectures, and we learn that there were some heavily armed right-wing militias holed up in hollow mountains for a while. But not much else. We don't see anyone get murdered for the cause. There are no mass demonstrations with choking clouds of tear gas or hails of bullets. Speaking from personal experience, it was easy to imagine life after capitalism, but imagining the actual end of capitalism is hard. Think of William Gibson's outstanding jackpot novels, The Peripheral, 2014, and Agency, 2020. These tell the story of a far future in which the climate emergency has been fully resolved after an interregnum called the jackpot, in which things went very badly for civilization indeed. But the jackpot is a blank, a lost era, a dark age. Even though the tale blips back and forth between the future and several other moments in time, including our own era, the jackpot is never addressed nor depicted. It's a jump cut, an excision, First, there is our time, then our near future, and then all at once, a time far from now in which the system is transformed. Gibson finesses it with the mastery of a close-up card mechanic, but it's still a noticeable omission. Transitions are hard. Kim Stanley Robinson's been writing post-capitalist futures for quite some time. It was his 1990 novel, Pacific Edge, that inspired me to write Down and Out in the Magic Kingdom. During the 2010s, Robinson published four linked novels, starting with 2012's 2312, which started three centuries out and worked their way back to the present day through Aurora, 2015, New York, 2140, 2017, and Red Moon, 2018. In these books, Robinson starts with a tale of a society that is centuries into its post-capitalist future, then, like an artillery sergeant, range-finding by walking his mortar fire closer in as he zeroes in on his target, Robinson uses this backcasting to get closer and closer to the transition state between capitalism and not capitalism. But he never got there. Not with those books and not in that decade. It wasn't until 2020's The Ministry for the Future that Robinson actually imagined the end of capitalism. Not just life after capitalism, but life through a multi-year transition from one system to another. The Ministry for the Future is an extraordinary and brilliant book. It's told in a kind of documentary style, jumping to dozens of points of view and places to illuminate different aspects of the transition. The main plot follows a handful of characters, providing a through line that all this peripheral material can play against. And, hat tip to Zizek, or possibly Jameson, in the Ministry for the Future, the end of capitalism is precipitated by the imminent end of the world. The Ministry for the Future isn't just the story of the end of capitalism. It's also the story of the end of the climate emergency. The story of how we orient our productive capacity, lifestyles, and education to head off a species and civilization-destroying death spiral. 
The book doesn't promise a return to normalcy or even the end of crisis, but it does depict a plausible and heroically uplifting and inspiring end to the emergency. Robinson's depiction of the violence of the climate emergency is pitiless. The book opens with a killing heat wave over India's northern plains that leaves 20 million dead, and those deaths are etched on the page and haunt the whole sweep of the story. From the very start, Robinson refuses to look away, refuses to flinch from the sheer terror of the climate emergency. I'm always skeptical of the advice not to normalize bad things. Whatever happens normally becomes normalized. People in death camps normalize their circumstances. What hope do we have of not normalizing whatever is going on in our lives? Robinson's ability to keep the urgency of the climate emergency alive and vivid on the page is truly remarkable. There's another source of violence and terror in Robinson's story, and this one is far more remote. Robinson's transition arises out of a mix of tactics, some economic, some social, some regulatory. Key to this transition are spectacular acts of mass violence. For example, using drones to crash every executive jet in the sky all at once. The terrorists who commit these atrocities aren't in the mix of characters whose lives we briefly experience through the book's vignettes neither are their victims. They're remote, abstract. There are good reasons for this. The acts of terror in the Ministry for the Future are truly deplorable. Zooming in on them runs the risk of glorifying them. And yet, I was and remain unsettled by the offstage violence in the Ministry for the Future. I don't know if it's there because Robinson believes that the end of capitalism will be attended by such violence, History suggests that revolutions are rarely bloodless after all. As one of my characters says in my 2019 novella Radicalized, quoting an Onion headline, they say violence never solves anything, but that's only true so long as you ignore all of human history. I'm a squeamish person. The last time I hit someone in anger, I was 10 years old. I don't want to be on the side of terror. As the tempo and intensity of fires and floods and pandemics and heat waves increases, the concrete terror of the looming point of climate no return takes on an urgency that exceeds the hypothetical terrors that Robinson depicts during his end of capitalism. It is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine a nonviolent end of capitalism. But we should still try. In many ways, we are already living in a post-capitalist society. Many of our most important jobs, parenting, caring for elderly relatives or friends, are unpaid. And virtually none of our great businesses or their industries would be profitable save for the vast state subsidies, the huge public subsidy inherent in the climate emergency. Companies profit by pushing off the highest cost of doing business to the rest of us in the form of rising seas, hurricanes, wildfires, and droughts. If companies had to carry this cost on their balance sheets, most firms would have to drastically restructure or go out of business. It's a bloody form of post-capitalism, one where vital hard work is unwaged and only costs but not profits are socialized. But there is an alternative. We just have to imagine it. All right, then. I will be back next week. I hope you have a great week. I hope you get vaccinated. And I hope you are safe. Bye again. You've been listening to the Cory Doctor Podcast, licensed under Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, Sharealike US 3.0. Or as Woody Guthrie put it in another context, 
This song is copyrighted in the U.S. under seal of copyright 154085 for a period of 28 years, and anyone caught singing it without our permission will be a mighty good friend of ours, because we don't give a dern. Publish it, write it, sing it, swing to it, yodel it, we wrote it, that's all we wanted to do. Many thanks to John Taylor Williams for mastering. That's Rynex Studio, W-R-Y-N-E-C-K Studio at gmail.com. John Taylor Williams is a full-time self-employed audio engineer, producer, composer, and sound designer. In his free time, he makes beer, jewelry, odd musical instruments, and furniture. He likes to meditate, to read, and to cook. Talk to you next week.